Technology executive Michael Gimmerin helps large organizations, smaller groups, and individuals manage the overwhelming superabundance of information around us. In this, my first interview episode, we discuss the art of understanding known as sense-making that he teaches. You can find out more information on his website, michaelgimmerin.com, or follow him on Twitter at Michael Gimmerin. Prejudice, ideology, bias, distortion, mindlessness. Bad thinking is everywhere. The world needs heroes to lead the way to better, higher, more valuable ways of thinking. These ways are timeless and never more needed than right now. Some claim that these timeless ways of thinking are now dangerous. To them I reply, beware of wolf. And I'm here with Michael Gimmerin. Uh, and uh, Michael Gimmerin is is uh, is a sense maker, and he teaches people sense making. So, Michael, I'd like you to start by telling me and our audience a little bit about you know, what your educational background is, your professional background, because this is this is a very different thing for for people to encounter. Most people haven't even heard of the term sense making. We'll get to that a little bit, but tell me tell me a little little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely, Wolf. Thank you. Um, my family's been through a number of crises over the generations. And one thing that's stuck through those things is the importance of education. And so for my grandmother, for my mother, for me, education is one of those things that people can't take away from you. And from a very young age, we put a lot of um, energy into critical thinking and everything that goes along with education. And so I went to uh, private schools from when I was two years old. Um, and that culminated in getting two degrees from Princeton University, uh, one in classics, which is the study of Latin and Greek, and another in psychology. And along that way, I also took classes at the local university, uh, Stanford, um, on various topics, including computer programming, which I started doing when I was 11. From a professional background, when I got out of undergraduate, I went immediately into programming really large systems inside of a, a search engine. Um, incredibly impactful experience for me, and it was a way for me to learn programming really quickly. From that really big system where I worked on uh, what today would be called continuous integration, continuous deployment, CICD, uh, which you could think of as like, you have a really big computer. It's actually made up of a bunch of really small computers. And if you want to learn about it, you can read about Beowulf supercomputing. And my job was to write the software that watched all the really small computers. So they would all add up into the big computers. And so I had this experience with dealing with all kinds of issues, machine to machine in terms of communication, networking, this kind of thing. And then from there, I went to work for what's called a content delivery network. Now, content delivery network is a company that has servers all over the world, and it helps deliver uh, information more quickly to end users. And the, the CDN that I worked for had about 
you know, two to three billion users a month. So it's likely if you're listening to this podcast um, that you are one of my customers. And the companies that I worked with were, you know, companies like Twitter and Pinterest and Reddit. And so I got a lot of experience dealing with um, information delivery at scale, right? So I had the programming experience and then I had all this experience working with customers. Um, and then, and then I, I wanted to go back to school. Uh, you know, I'm a contrarian. And so I went back to school and got an MBA. Now you might be thinking an MBA, that's not contrarian. And you have to understand in my subculture here in Silicon Valley, uh, people are very anti-MBA. They speak very negatively about it. And for me, I was like, oh, they're speaking so negatively about it. I should go learn more about it. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I took that same mindset, right? And when I, when I was in school, you know, getting good grades was important, but what was more important for me was, you know, following my curiosity passions, right? So I talk about how my favorite class at school was Renaissance garden and landscape architecture design. Hmm. Okay. Um, and what's funny is I always try to pull in threads from those disparate art lessons into my work uh, in computing, right? And you might be like, wow, this is like really kind of crazy, but you just never, you never understand uh, what's going to happen where, right? And so keeping an open mind and being open to opportunity and being curious um, and, and really focusing on trying to learn as much as I can about as many things as I can has really set me up with a great foundation um, to, you know, be interested in a lot of stuff. And, and that sort of brings me to today where I work, I work less on technical problems today and more on how do we take the information that's existing inside companies or organizations and more efficiently use it to make better decisions at every level of the organization. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, you mentioned in your bio, you mentioned uh, telemetry and you implied that managing telemetry is important down to individuals and smaller groups. Now I can have a sense that telemetry is, you know, all the information coming in from various sources, integrating that and understanding it in a way that people can make business decisions based on it. But what does telemetry mean in the context of individuals and smaller groups? Yeah, I think Telemetry, I just picked that word out of the air. You might call it metadata, which is data about data. So this thing happened over the last 50 years, which is basically any data that's interesting to a person is more or less free to access or to distribute, right? And so if you think about um, every website that you go on, every article that you read, every book that you read, Um, getting a list of all those things is actually really trivial from a computer's perspective. And if you look at people like Jeff Bezos or Albert Einstein or whoever, and you were to say, here are all the things that one of those people read for their entire life. And here's the order. Like people would love that, right? They'd be like, oh, this is why Jeff, you know, started doing this at Amazon because he read this thing. Right. And so when we think about telemetry, right? Or when I think about it, I think about we're generating data constantly and to store this data and do something with it later is more or less free. And so if it's going to be free, then it's going to be stored. And if it's going to be stored, then really smart people like Wolf are going to create algorithms to look at it and find patterns. And and then we're going to learn things, things that are really surprising and things that are probably like, yeah, my grandmother could have told me that, right? And 
Um, that, that, that's sort of what I mean by managing telemetry and sort of everybody gives off so much data um, mm-hmm. that there's like really interesting things that you can learn about people, right? For good or for ill. Sure. And, and I guess that gets, you know, obviously we're taking in all kinds of information about the world where most of us are in information overload. And I think that gets to the core of our conversation, which is, you know, sense making itself. What would you say, what is a high level view of over, overview of sense making? You know, you can talk about how the telemetry plays into that, but, you know, sense making is the core of the conversation. So what is it and why is it so important? Yeah. So sense making and sort of like a phrase is the art of understanding, right? And why is it important? It's like, well, we have to understand everything because we're just one small piece in a much larger puzzle. And there's been some changes in our media and information environment, which as you said, Wolf, we all feel acutely, right? There's too much information. There's this abundance that we're dealing with, right? It's a fire hose. You look at the words that people use about it. They're very overwhelming. And because our information environment has changed, right? We're not reading newspapers every morning. We're reading Facebook news feeds or Twitter or whatever. We're listening to podcasts like this one instead of the radio. Um, then the way that we understand both ourselves and our place in the world has to change, right? Just fundamentally, right? And, and, and like to put things into perspective, there's this really great statistic that's apocryphal, but it's like directionally accurate, right? And it goes mm-hmm. something like this. A week's worth of New York Times articles contains just as much information as someone was likely to experience in their lifetime in the 17th century and before. Wow. And so when it's like, exactly, wow. It's, mm-hmm. When I think about that, I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy how much we have to deal with, right? And, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's like ours are problems of abundance, not scarcity. So. Right. Well, I guess we live in a post-scarcity society, at least information wise. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so obviously we're trying to figure out these coping strategies to deal with the situation. I, I guess is, you know, unique in human history that we face, that we find ourselves facing these past couple generations are facing. So what's at stake if we don't learn better sense making what's going wrong right now that, that points to the need to, to develop this skill. Yeah. I, I sort of look at it uh, a couple of ways, right? So one way that's interesting is you ask what's going wrong, right? And, you know, if you think about your life and you think about the things that you've eaten in your life, we all know that you need to eat a balanced diet. And that maybe is like, you know, whole foods that your great, great grandmother would recognize, right? Mm-hmm. So not super pro- processed and packaged and vegetables and, and meats and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And when, when you see someone who's like, I'm going to go and I'm just going to eat donuts every single day, right? They get sort of sick, right? And their, and their body starts to distend and some of them get like really fat and then they have all kinds of issues, right? Like heart disease and obesity and diabetes and all this kind of thing. So that's from eating too many donuts. If we think about the information environment, like what happens when you consume too much information? right? And are there equivalents? Like, is there low quality information that we love to eat? Kind of like eating donuts. Like I like donuts, right? It's not good sure. for me, but I, I love them. Right. Yep. And I like pizza and I like all kinds of stuff. That's like, yeah, not something you should be eating constantly. Right. And with these, with these cell phones that we carry around, right. These second brains, 
we have access to whatever information we want, right? And, you know, whether you call it doom scrolling or you're looking at Instagram thoughts or whatever it is that works for you, right? Like what happens? What's the version of obesity for the information diet? Yeah, what is information diabetes? Exactly, right? And how do you recognize someone with that? Now we could say that, you know, QAnon followers are suffering from a kind of information disease or, you know, people whose heads exploded during the last presidency when you mentioned the president in any context, right? Mm -hmm. You could say left or right doesn't really matter, that there are some topics where when you talk about them, like some people, uh, they have a meltdown, right? And um, if you're, if you're, if Wolf ever sprinkles uh, really interesting things, you should go read about series uh, Scissor. Um, and this is, talks about basically a scissor is something that half the population is like, yeah, totally. That's fine. And then the uh, other half like loses it. Right. And so um, it cuts the population in two is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. You don't know like what's going to be a scissor and what isn't going to be a scissor. And it's just kind of like an interesting concept. And you can, there's a very nice, uh, uh, short story by, you know, a, a horror author about it. Hmm. And, um, yeah. So, so that, that's part of it, right? So it's like, okay, what is, what does it look like to have these metabolic diseases in the context of information? Right. And then the other thing is that none of us has all the information that we need. It's funny, right? Like I can look up anything on the phone and I can call mm-hmm. 3 billion people if I know what their phone number is and they're willing to pick up, but I don't know everything that needs to know, like I couldn't build the phone or that I'm, excuse me, the laptop that I'm talking on. Right. I have mm-hmm. no idea basically how that works. I mean, I actually have quite an idea of how it works, but I really have no idea. Right. Absolutely. And so I rely on other people. And so we have to make decisions with other people at some level. And so if we're not dealing with the fact that we might be uh, making poor decisions because we're dealing with an overloaded information environment, then you're going to start to see a breakdown in, in everything. Right. Because we have to come to some kind of agreement with other people in order to exist in society from building things to going to the supermarket to whatever. Right. And unfortunately, since communication is a kind of information uh, and the information environment has changed, that means that our communication environment has changed and everything, therefore, is part of this topic, unfortunately. So so sense making then is a. Uh something we have to do collaboratively it's something you know we're not we're no 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 one's an island so you know i take it then that that part of sense making is figuring out how to collaborate and with whom to collaborate uh and and how to build a better picture of the world so but what would you say is like a high level overview of i mean would you call sense making a set of skills or how would you characterize it yeah that's that's why i said it's an art right it's just like like it's hard to under it's hard to unpack and the reason why is um, everyone innately learns sense-making when they're a small child, right? So if you think about a kindergartner who's playing in the, on the playground in the sandbox, you know, they might, you, you might picture them like moving sand from one area to the other, or like, you know, doing experiments with water, right? Mm-hmm. And as adults, it's really funny when we want to explain things to other people, we always adopt the language of the kindergartner, right? So if we're gonna talk about time, we talk about the flow of time. Or if we're gonna talk about some abstract idea like solving a problem, we say, we're gonna go tackle this problem, right? We use words that basically are understandable to 
the simplest ideas, right? And, and, and like, if you think about like all the learning that you've ever done, like the best, you know, Richard Feynman and others, the best uh, teachers, they all make it really simple for us, right? Because sense making in, in a natural course of events is something that we automatically get as a consequence of growing up, right? It's how you can take a baby from 400 generations ago and grow them up today and they don't go crazy. But if you took an adult who's already formed a reality and you bring them from two, you know, 8,000 years ago, their mind would explode instantly. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's because as we age through different, and this is from the psychology, as we age through different years, um, our ability for neuroplasticity, which is basically how much your brain can change and our ability to learn new things, it, it really decreases. And, and so sense-making is something that a hundred years from now, no one's really going to talk about because like all the little kids will already know all of the things, right? Like when you're teaching your kids about danger and risks and all that, you're using a model of your understanding of the world to teach them. The problem is, is that our parents didn't have a model that works for us in the environment that we're in, right? Like if I communicate with my great grand, my grandmother, okay, who, you know, just died recently, um, she, she would have me, she doesn't even know about, she knew email was like letters on the internet and I would have to print them out for her. Right. And so the idea that she would be able to explain concepts like, you know, how to use Twitter effectively or when to not trust Wikipedia is sort of not helpful. Right. Like, so she couldn't give me advice when I was a little kid. And so I had to figure it out on my own. And as an, as an adult now with small children, I want to teach my kids the same thing, but you know what? I don't really know what's going on. And I like study this, you know what I mean? And so, so, you know, yeah, I mean, as a, as a Gen Xer, I feel like in many ways, you know, I'm, I'm really up on technology. I'm a technologist. In other words, I feel like I'm kind of behind the curve. So, you know, socially understanding how people, how young people are learning to make sense of the world right now. Let me give you an example about why we know the kids are going to be okay. Right. So the previous economic formation of the world was something called industrial. Right. And um, you could think of like uh, factories and nation states as being industrial. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, in an industrial society, the organizations with a lot of power, they tend to look like pyramids. Okay. Where there's a guy at the top who gets maximum leverage from all the people below him in the pyramid. Mm -hmm. And so we, when we asked kids, in the 1960s, you know, 11, 12 year olds, what do you want to be when they grow up? Right. Well, they pick the people at the top of the pyramid. I want Henry to be Ford or, or president yep. or the CEO or an astronaut, right? An mm -hmm. astronaut is the guy that goes into space, but there's a gazillion engineers who have to build all that stuff. Right. And they kind of stand look at the top of that pyramid. Exactly. Right. Everybody wants to be at the top. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and you might describe it as a ladder or whatever. Right. Like, but they know that they want to be at the top because that's where the leverage is and that's where the excitement is. Right. And when you ask kids today, what do you want to be? You don't get president, CEO, astronaut. What you get instead are highly connected nodes. Influencers. You influencer. You get YouTube star. And they're not able to articulate, like, because most people don't understand, well, why are they choosing YouTube star? That's ridiculous. Wouldn't you want to be the president? But our society has moved from an industrial society 
to an information society and an inf- and an in and in an information society the dominant structures are not pyramids they're fabrics where we're all connected together like uh you know neurons in the brain where we can choose who to connect with or disconnect with and so what becomes valuable is not the guy at the top but the person who has um the most influence the most the spi- like the spider at the center of the web kind of thing the spider at the center of the web right and so then so the kids they're not they don't they cannot articulate why but they already know what they want to be which is again the most valuable thing in the entire network which is the influencer now i don't know what that says about our society but there it is right hmm. well in a way it seems to me that is still the the, the basic desire that's trying to address is still the same uh kind of you know power and influence is to have control over your environment and and but except it's not being done in the industrial way you described it's being done in in a newer way that seems to actually um in, in many ways carry more weight in in the world right now uh is that is that that way of being an influencer um but it seems to me that there's things that that kids aren't getting now that that say you know you're my generation does and that there's and and bad thinking isn't going away you know there's things that i can learn that better there's things that kids can they can learn better it seems to me that 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 kind of bad thinking is kind of a universal thing, except maybe the different kinds of bad, there's different kinds of bad thinking my generation engaged in versus younger generations are engaging in right now. And is there, is there a way you can kind of characterize, you know, sense making in terms of say best practices or good thinking versus, you know, what you're seeing going on, which it's, it, it needs to be corrective of. Yeah, exactly. So like, let me, let me give an example. Um, we have this saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the reason why we have this saying is because humans collectively are really excellent at throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? And mm-hmm. right now we're in one of those weird periods in history. The, the last time this happened was like the 1520s, right? We're in this weird period of history where some fundamentals have changed. And as a consequence, we have to revisit all of the heuristics or basic rules all the models that we use to understand the world, right? To sense make in the world. And so the idea of we need to figure out what's good thinking and bad thinking is actually more important today than it has been for hundreds of years, right? And so part of sense making is um, coming to the realization that there's not gonna be an authority who tells you, hey, you know, this is how you should think about something or this is what you should think about something. It's deciding for yourself what information, which models are impactful, and then adopting and incorporating those, right? And it's 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 everyone's responsibility because there's no, uh, for themselves, because there's no like institution that exists today that's going to give you good advice. And I think we all sort of understand that at some level. Like, it's funny, I talk to doctors and they tell me like, the medical establishment is terrible, right? And then I talk to lawyers and they're like, the legal system is just so screwed up, right? And I talk to engineers, especially software engineers, and they mm-hmm. go, I have no idea how the internet works. You know what I mean? Like, right. they're like, it's like, it's like tape and glue and who knows why it works, but it just, works. Just, right? are, you, are you saying that like, for example, in the case of engineers, it's like, you know, it's, uh, I see that it works, but knowing what I know about it, you know, how it continues to work is like, it should fail, but it doesn't for some reason. Yeah. It's kind of like this um, specific manifestation of what's called the gel man amnesia effect, 
And if you're not unfamiliar with that, it's basically the, this observation, right? You're, you, you're, you went to like a sports game or something the day before and you read the newspaper the next day and you read an article about the game and the journalist completely gets it wrong, right? They, they, they don't have the right score. They don't have like what happened. In some cases, they mix up cause and effect. And you're just like, what the hell? This is a terrible article, okay? And then you turn the page and you read another article about, I don't know, business. And you're like, huh, that's interesting. Not knowing that that other article and every article in the newspaper is just as messed up as the one that you read. So Amnesia, in the sense that you turn the page and you, you forget how how incredible the story was you just read implies that there's a level of low credibility about everything in the newspaper. Exactly. Right. And so when you talk to people today, whatever field of study or wherever they're in, they tell you about how the institutions there are just like totally messed up. Right. And they still haven't gotten to the point of like accepting that all of the institutions are messed up and they're messed up because some of the fundamentals have changed. Right. And so that agitates for, we are responsible for figuring out what's gonna work for us. And it's gonna be different for different people, right? And I think that's gonna be challenging for folks and why it's more important than ever to really, you know, try to be as disciplined and intentional about the way that you're thinking as you can be, because you're not gonna be able to rely on, you know, the US government's food pyramid to tell you about how to consume information. Sure. You know, you talk about doctors, you know, uh, understanding that the medical establishment has serious problems uh, and they can't do anything about it. Same thing with lawyers and the legal establishment. But it sounds like those individual doctors and lawyers, they're not just relying on those establishments. They've somehow transcended them on their own. And would you say that's due to their skills at sense making within their environment, at least within those disciplines? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because there's a selection bias because I'm talking to people who are going to be like me. And so you're right. I don't tend to talk to doctors who sort of take everything that comes from on high as sort of gospel. And I'm being very deliberate and calling them priests, by the way, because in a lot of cases, they've moved away from sort of evidence-based arguments. And actually, you could make the same claim for lawyers as well. Um, I guess you're right. Like the people that I talk to, you know, they still maintain a, a beginner's mind, if you will. They're still curious and they want to understand things from first principles, right? So if somebody says, you know, bread is the most important thing that you should eat every day, these are the kind of people who go, oh, interesting. Why is that, right? What is What happens when someone eats so much bread? Or what's, you know, let's run an experiment. Let's do science, right? Let's try to be rational about it. Um, and like, so, so from my perspective, like those, you're right, those people are sort of thinking about it. And certainly like that doesn't seem to be the norm because there's a lot of people who just sort of repeat whatever the high priest says. The, the received wisdom. So it sounds like the people you're talking to, uh, they're, they're not relying on the received wisdom in the sense that they're, they're, they're just parroting it. They're actually going out and doing their own critical thinking, their own, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, surveys of the research and things like that. And, and maybe they're even researchers and are, and are asking the questions that haven't yet been asked. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you can also talk to like random people and say healthcare and be like, man, this system seems like it has weird monetary incentives, right? And everyone agrees with you. So there is some understanding at every level that the system is like fundamentally dysfunctional, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you can talk to basically anyone in 
the legal profession and say like, do you think that the criminal justice system is, you know, optimal, right? And they just like will launch into a, you know, nine hour diatribe about how it's terrible, right? And and yet they're still part of it, right? So it, it is an interesting dynamic that you point out, Wolf. So in terms of sense making, you've described sense making as an art. We've described, we've identified there's certain collaborative aspects to it, but if you were to break down it down, like say as you know, uh, a set of skills that you know, I mean, critical thinking seems to be part of it, but it's bigger than that. How would you kind of what's the what's your, um, you know, what, what are the categories of of sub skills or tasks you would put under sense making? Yeah, I think this is a hard question for me. So when I I teach a class on sense making and um, the way that I think about it is that there are a bunch of different perspectives and each perspective takes on uh, different forms and you try to integrate the perspectives into your own identity where they work, right? So, um, you know, I guess zooming back out, whenever I think about, should I think about whether or not this thing is true? I wanna ask myself a simple question, which is, if I do all this effort to figure out if someone's lying to me or if this you know, new fact that I read is true, will it change an action that I'm already taking? Mm-hmm. And if it won't change an action that I'm already taking, and that, that already taking piece is key, right? If it won't change an action I'm already taking, then I actually try to ignore it. And you sort of already do this today because I doubt very many of your listeners are concerned with the effectiveness of the weather forecaster in, in India from yesterday, mm-hmm. right? There's all kinds of information we're already not getting. But when I when I think about how I'm primed for scarcity, right? So I, I want I want to consume things because I don't want to miss out on what's happening, right? I want to be in the know, right? It's a social status thing. And when I apply this simple rule like, do I really care about the results of the election in Wisconsin? It doesn't actually affect me. That sort of gives me permission to let it go. And then I start to get my time back, right? Mm-hmm. And I start to get more focused. So that would be like one example of, you know, like a hack that I might do, right? Or, you know, another thing that we talk about in my class is emotional triggering, right? So you'll be reading some information and because you don't have context, a lot, of, a lot of times you'll see an image or a video or some statistic and it'll make you really upset. And so we talk about like, why does it make you upset? Do you, you know, coming to an understanding about how it allows you to make you upset, trying to figure out if the person sending this information is trying to make you upset on purpose, right? Do they have an ulterior motive or they have like a, a noble motive, right? And trying to make you upset and, and really breaking down um, our emotional reactions. Cause, because I think we all understand at this point that we're going to get triggered by things in our information environment, unless we sort of adopt some kind of, you know, stoic philosophy. Right. And so a, a big part, a big part of making better decisions is being aware of the instances when you get emotionally triggered or, um, you're going to make bad decisions, right? Like when people are tired, they make bad decisions, right? That's why we make pilots go to sleep and this kind of thing, right? Like they're not allowed to fly, you know, five days in a row. Um, it's the same when we make, you know, other kinds of decisions. So really like getting into all these different perspectives on how we make decisions and where we can, you know, tactically improve 
Um, that to me is the essence of upgrading our sense making while also going into and, you know, sussing out, well, what's fundamentally different today than say five generations ago, right? Because like you said, the technology is different, but humans are more or less the same as they've always been, right? So what's actually different so that we can address that aspect of it and go back to those things which serve us? So it was a terrible answer to your question, but I tried. No, no, it's, it's, no, I think I, I got some important threads out of it. I mean, one of which is the idea that we need to be actively filtering. You, you mentioned the information diet before, you know, we have a pocket of, we have a, a pocket full of donuts basically all day. You know, how often do we reach for the donuts as opposed to reach for something that's actually nourishing? Well, what is nourishing? It sounds like you're saying, well, if it, if it has a chance of you changing your behavior for the better, instead of just making you enraged, then it's probably more likely to be nourishing. Does, does that make, does that sound right? Yeah, I think that tracks, you know, is this aligned with your mission, right? And it, it, if it's not something that contributes to your mission and it's not something that you can affect, don't worry about it. Wait, I need a mission? What's a mission? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? No, like, no, I mean, like, I think a lot of maybe some listeners are going, okay, tracks with your mission, but a lot of people don't even know that they should have a mission in life or, the, you know, or a higher purpose or anything like that. Yeah, I so I don't like want to make a you know complete tangent. Honestly. Yeah, I know, I but tangents. So. But but for those of you who don't understand what I mean, is uh, part of taking on that mantle of responsibility is deciding for yourself why your life is meaningful, right? And we all come to a decision about why that's the case separately, and and collectively, I think we call this our mission, right? And so. <laughs> Some people's mission may be to make great art. Some people's mission may be to inspire through their sports performance. Other people want to become teachers, right? Wolf, at some level, his mission informs, is about informing people and educating them so he has this podcast, right? So, you know, my mission is about, I want to help people think better, so I want to teach them sense-making, right? So these are things that we do and that we spend our time on because they're personally meaningful for us. And collectively, I think we call it our mission. Did I do a good job of describing yeah, it? Or Yeah, that's, no, it's, it's just that that concept kind of entered the conversation. I think it's an incredibly important concept for people to understand that all, all improvement requires change, but not all changes are an improvement. So when we say, when you said, if we're going to, uh, you know, look at information we, and filter out what won't change our behavior, it's like, okay, well, what kind of changes should we be seeking? And what is improvement? And you, you mentioned missions like, well, yeah, that ties into something greater. So this all kind of ties together top to bottom. That's all I was trying to do there. So how do you personally kind of, you, you teach a course now, you're becoming you know, more and more recognized as a, a teacher of sense-making. So um, how, what would you say is like a high level of, of your course? How long does it last, uh, last and you know, kind of, how would you describe it? Yeah, so right now it's six weeks long. It's, um, I would say about two to three hours a week in a combination of homework and a live group discussion. Um, and it's pretty intense. We're working on making it a little bit more easy for people to get. Uh, right now it's all synchronous. So it's like a live teaching environment over Zoom. Um, and I'm trying to make it asynchronous, but it's, it's difficult because everybody grapples with these issues in a different way. Um, and so that's a, a challenge for me as a teacher. And, and that's sort of what's fulfilling and nourishing about it in terms of, you know, if you're thinking about taking the sense-making class, um, so what I would do, so I, the, I, I charge money for the class because I feel like you have to pay for something if it wants to be long-term and durable. Yep. 
Um, and what's really interesting for me is the more money that I've charged, the more seriously people take it and the faster and more easily they have results, right? Um, and so it's like, I'm accelerating like the, the end game of what I'm trying to do, which is basically like, I've spent my entire life learning how to think, not what to think, which is different from, I would say most of society. And I'm just teaching people like, Hey, here's things that have been helpful for me from a how to think perspective. And this is how we apply it in a sense-making context. Um, and it's been really, it's been really working out well for them. Right. And you might be asking like, well, why did you decide to do this? And I actually agree with that question. So I'm going to ask that question, even though yeah, please, ask yeah. it. Go, go ahead. <laughs> um, and, and basically what happened was, you know, early on in the coronavirus pandemic, I had set up a really tuned network, information network, a graph, if you will. And by the end of January, 2020, I knew everything that we ever learned about coronavirus save one fact. And that one fact happened on February 5th, which is the guy who probably originally coded the virus was murdered in Nairobi, Kenya. His name's oh, Frank wow. Plummer. Okay. And, um, what was so surprising about that is that there was nothing that we've learned since then that was different from what we learned at the end of January, right? Mm. And there's always these people who make these sort of, you know, nebulous claims like the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed and blah, blah, blah. And I had sort of always believed that, but I had never experienced it. And with the coronavirus pandemic and being able to actually collect all the information from these really random, you know, far graph information sources to come into some collective whole um, and then act on that information. So I made a published a report. Mm -hmm. It was like the most incredible thing ever. And then a bunch of people saw that report and, you know, a lot of money was saved, like a lot of money, um, like a catastrophically lot, like almost a billion dollars at this point, which I think is just sort of a ridiculous number. So I'm just always going to say it's <laughs> a lot of money. Um, people were like, how did you do this, right? What were your sources? And so I was trying to explain to people my sources. And what I realized is that my sources are not helpful for other people. What they really want is my process for creating sources in the first place, right? And for thinking about, well, how do I, how do I weigh and measure information? And so I started teaching them that and that evolved in the sense-making course and people really like it. And so I was like, all right, I guess I'll, I'll teach this now. So your initial product was the report that helped people save a lot of money by understanding the coronavirus, uh, the pandemic in a deeper way, but your actual process is what people wanted to drill down on. And that process is transferable to, you know, all kinds of other, um, you know, large problems is, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. Like saying. literally the process is how do you, how do you make sense of huge amounts of information very quickly? And then it turns out that we have huge amounts of information, abundance of information across every category, right? So doctors, they apply all the skills in medicine. Business people, they apply it to all the opportunities that they get, right? Because, you know, as children, and if we think about our entire history as a species, it's always been about the economics of scarcity, right? Like we're afraid of losing something that we already have. And as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, now it's about the economics of abundance, right? And so it's if you're a business person, it's not like you're only going to get one opportunity and you better be sure to take advantage of that one opportunity or you're going to be poor for the rest of your life. No, it's like every day when you're a business person, you get 
incredible opportunities. In fact, you're overwhelmed with opportunities. And so how do you pick the one that's going to be most effective for you? Well, that requires dealing with too much information, right? Like being able to reduce the noise and pull out the signal. So it sounds like we all need to become our own information curators in, in a sense that, you know, that exactly. even just relying on other people to do it for us um, is becoming less and less uh, effective in terms of applying it to our own lives. That's what I think. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I don't find a lot of people giving me specifically really great advice. Like my mom, she'll give me advice that's like good for me to integrate, but like I wouldn't have my mom run my life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's so probably like, the best advice I get. Too. Right. So, I mean, what, I, so what I'm hearing is that, you know, it's like, okay, if we are our information curators, we have to take information from a lot of different sources that none of which by themselves might be, you know, that great, but together, if we have good sense-making uh, capability, we can actually put them together into something that as a whole is much better for us as individuals or for our businesses or families or whatever. Exactly. Right. It's, um, it's fundamentally about shifting from a Newtonian model of the universe to a quantum model of the universe, right? So yeah, unpack that a bit. Yeah. So in Newtonian physics, you have cause and effect, right? Mm -hmm. You have these very simple rules that you can learn. And it just explains like, let's say 98% of what you observe. And in quantum mechanics, it's freaking crazy, right? And it's It's random. It's stochastic. It's it's, jumping between levels of energy and exactly. Right. And the way that I try to reduce it for people is like, it's, it's highly prop. It's like probabilistic, right? So Mm -hmm. We don't say that something is true or false. We say, this is the probability that it's going to affect me. And this is the magnitude of that thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so thinking about things in terms of probabilities and like Bayesian priors and all this kind of thing. And I understand like, if you're not interested in statistics, that that's hard, but just think of it like, okay, so instead of saying like, this is true and this is false, we're going to assume that everything is true, but it's not going to equally apply. Right. And that, and then, and then the, then the question becomes, okay, what is the most true thing for me? Right. Like so many of the big discussions in our society are about one person says one thing and another person says another thing, but really it's just a projection of their perspective. And when you actually dig into the nuance of what the person's saying, they believe that it's true and it's true from that perspective. And then it's sort of, you really get messed up. Right. And so then the process of understanding becomes, kind of like collapsing the wave function of reality at a single point in time and trying sure. to make a determination as opposed to saying like, you know, X is Y and therefore Y is Z, right? Or, you know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, it's not super, you know, things that were true two weeks ago, we get new information. It's like, okay, we got to make a 180 degree turn. It's like, it's painful sometimes. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when we learn how to program computers, this could be a little bit geeky. You know, we learn about values that are true or false. They're called Boolean values. That's all they can ever be. It's true or false. But then we learn about things like fuzzy Booleans that could be somewhere between true, false, or indeterminate somewhere in the middle. And the way I, I like to think of things as actually um, what's called a paraconsistent fuzzy Boolean, which where something you decide how, how true is something based on the knowledge and how false is it. So you can have something that's very strongly true and false, in which case you have a contradiction. You can have a state where there's no knowledge at all, where you have no knowledge about what, how true or false something is. And then you have something where, where, uh, you know, something is neither, neither true nor false. And so these things, thinking about things that way as a gradient of, of these things speak to the truth of this and these things speak to the falsity of this and then realizing that they can be on any of those scales. It's like, that's the kind of cloud of probabilities. And then, you know, the decision you ultimately make, you know, you accept the outcome and that would be like the collapse of the wave function, whatever it turns out to be. Does that sound right? No, that sounds exactly right. And so the simpler way that I explain this to non-practitioners is imagine that you're at the bottom of a mountain and there's somebody at the top of the mountain 
and somebody asks both people to describe the mountain, because their perspective is fundamentally different in relation to the mountain, their description of it is going to be fundamentally different. And they're both, they're both true, right? And it's really, and, and what gets crazy is that um, most of the things that are really important in human society are just narratives that we tell each other, right? Like money, so much time is spent worrying about money. Money's just a story. This is like not real. Like when you dig into it, it's like there's a number in a computer system that says how much money I have. And if somebody goes in and flips some bits, uh, suddenly my entire life's work is gone. I forget who it was that said money is a consensual hallucination or something like that. You know, yeah, we, exactly, we all agree right? it has value. So it magically it has value, you know? Right. And like, this is like really hard for people. And this one of the things that I tell them, it's like, it doesn't matter whether Jesus Christ lived and died. Mm-hmm. A billion people believe that he lived and died. So you have to just deal with that, right? Yep. And there's so much of that at play. And when you start learning about the power of narratives and how easy it is for people to be led from one narrative to another and how they're actually believing a particular story makes that story true, uh, it's very, very difficult, right? And and obviously as a rationalist, I don't like this, but it's just been my observation that um, this is what happens. And so... And so, yeah, like there's this, this huge shift that has occurred uh, where we need to um, really be clear on, okay, what is the narrative that I'm believing? And is this actually helpful to me, this advice, right? Like think of it this way, right? Um, if you're getting advice from somebody, uh, wouldn't you want that person to already have the results that you're looking to achieve? Like nobody goes to a dentist with messed up teeth, mm-hmm. right? And so why would you listen to, uh, the government who doesn't seem to have your interests at heart about your health. Like, why wouldn't you go to like someone like Wolf, who's like actually like really healthy? You know what I mean? Like, like you are, I mean, I've met yeah. you in person. Like, yeah. so like that, that, that's, that's going to happen everywhere. Right. And, and like, this is like hard for people, I think. And we'll, we'll, we'll see. Right? Yeah. So where can people find out more about the courses you offer and uh, you know, and sign up for to, uh, to take your course? Yeah, so I'm I'm um, not the greatest marketer, but you can you can sign up for my email list on my website michaelgimmerin.com, and I make an announcement there uh, when the course goes live and everybody jumps in, and then it you know it takes anyway. Yep. And then the other place that you can follow me is uh, Twitter. Same thing at Michael Gimmerin on Twitter, and I'll have uh, links and, to those in the show notes. Yep, yeah, exactly, and those things are all linked together that's sort of the best way to find out about me. And I'm really working on trying to like become more available for people, but you know, this was not, I did not dream up one day that I was going to be one of those guys selling courses and how to make courses. And just turned out that, you know, this is a really powerful framework. It's easy. And like people are having less stress and more focus. I mean, what, how can you not like that? Right. Yeah. And when it sounds like, you know, as you, you know, calling, I don't think we choose our callings Our callings choose us in many ways. And it sounds like this call, this is a, something you've been called to, 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 you know, raise the bar about the, like this in, in, in people's lives and minds. So, and I'm sure as you teach this course, you're learning, you're deepening your own skills and learning how, and, and, uh, deepening your own understanding of this, uh, you know, amazing and, and critical subject that we're all, that, that we need to incorporate into our daily lives. That's so, exactly right. Yep. Yeah. 
Michael Gimmern, thank you so much for uh, for joining me, and uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing other people's uh, comments on this conversation. Thank you, Wolf. Really enjoyed being here. Learn more about the world's premier critical thinking tool, Flying Logic, at FlyingLogic.com. Help spread the word by rating and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast platform. Discuss this episode at BewareOfWolf.com and keep raising the bar, whether the world likes it or not.